Welcome to Swan Sessions, a podcast from Swan Auction Galleries. In this series, we tap into our well of expertise and hear from specialists in our departments, including American art, African American fine art, autographs, books, contemporary art, illustration, maps and atlases, photographs and photo books, printed and manuscript Americana and African Americana, prints and drawings, and vintage posters. You'll hear our specialists discuss everything from fine art to ephemera and from collecting to auction world trends. Our second episode comes from a live event here at SWAN. On September 15th, our African-American Fine Art Department has the honor of auctioning the art collection of Maya Angelou. We partnered with the Academy of American Poets and the Cave Canem Foundation to present Pulitzer Prize-winning poet Gregory Pardlow, who gave a talk about Dr. Angelou's poetic legacy. The evening's discussion was hosted and moderated by SWAN's Director of African-American Fine Art, Nigel Freeman. Thank you very much. I wanted to welcome you all to Swan Auction Galleries. And thank you for coming to this evening celebration of Maya Angelou. We're very excited to celebrate her poetic legacy tonight with this special evening. I'd like to introduce myself and welcome you all to Swan Galleries. My name is Nigel Freeman. I am the director of our African American Fine Art Department. And Swan Galleries is the only major auction house in the country with a department dedicated to the works of African-American fine artists. And we hold biannual auctions of art by significant artists, and we've been doing this since 2007. And to begin with, I'd like to thank very much the Academy of American Poets and Kavit Khanum Foundation for partnering <coughs> with Swan to present this event. And I'd like to thank you very much, guest of honor, poet Jeffrey Parlow. Thank you for being our guest. Gregory Parlow. Um, thank you. Um, we are very honored to present here this evening um, to you, in addition to the, the poetry we we're going to hear, this personal art collection of Maya Angelou. Um, this is an unusual exhibition for us. We're very excited and honored to present a group here of 50 works that were exhibited in Dr. Angelou's homes. And uh, these are all the works of prominent African-American artists, both modern and contemporary. And Dr. Angelou had long-standing friendships and relationships with many of these artists. So this is really the first time to see them all together. And unfortunately, it's also the last time, as they will be sold here next week. Uh, we are an auction house, and auction exhibitions are, are short. Uh, we have an exhibition today through Saturday afternoon, Monday and Tuesday, and the auction takes place here Tuesday afternoon at 2.30. Uh, we are open to the public. A lot of people... Don't come to exhibitions at auction houses, but we are open to the public, both the exhibition and the auction itself. And we um, are here uh, also to make things more accessible. We are able to have bidding, not just in the room. So if you can't come to an auction, you can also set up phone bidding or online bidding. And if you have any questions about this co collection, um, or the auction itself, please speak to me after this talk or ask someone who has a swan blue pin and they can answer 
any of your questions. And uh, thank you very much. Again, thank you for the Academy of American Poets, Kavi Khanum and Gregory Parlow. And now I'd like to turn things over to Jennifer Benka. Thank you very much. Thank you, Nigel. And thank you all for being here tonight. We're very pleased to have been able to partner with the Kavi Khanum Foundation and Swan Galleries to present a program honoring the life and poetic legacy of Dr. Maya Angelou, a writer whose work has been essential, I know, to so many of us. For those of you who don't know the Academy of American Poets, we're the nation's largest member-supported organization promoting poets and poetry. We offer a variety of programs and publications for poets, educators, and readers. You can find us online at poets.org. I'm now very happy to introduce Cornelius Eady, who will introduce the poet Greg Pardlow, tonight's speaker. Cornelius is the co-founder of Cave Canem, the premier organization committed to cultivating the artistic and professional growth of African-American poets. An esteemed poet, Cornelius is the author of several collections, including Brutal Imagination, which was a finalist for the National Book Award in Poetry, and The Gathering of My Name, which was nominated for the Pulitzer Prize. His honors include fellowships from the Guggenheim Foundation, the National Endowment for the Arts, and the Rockefeller Foundation. He currently holds the Miller Chair in Poetry at the University of Missouri. We're honored to have him here tonight. Please welcome Cornelius Eady. Thank you, Jen. It's, it is really a wonder and pleasure to be here uh, among um, Dr. Angelou's collection, which I had no, um, no real, um, we didn't think actually uh, did poets do things like this, right? <laughs> <laughs> poets are poor and they, <laughs> they live in hovels and they don't collect things, or they collect stamps maybe, right? <laughs> you know? So, so how wonderful to see, to see this, this gathering of, of art collected together. Um, um, I, many of them, I believe, are um, originals. Um, I, I, was, I was told, not, not simply stuff that she picked up someplace. They, they were actually you know, made for her. So what a unique collection this is. Um, and it is a real honor to, to um, introduce um, Jeff Pardlow. Um, and the <laughs> great, great, great. <laughs> And uh, <laughs> uh, you know, this is this is something that goes on. It's been going on for a long, long time, guys. And so, don't it's no disrespect meant <laughs> meant here. Uh, Greg is 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 a, is a Kavikanum fellow, um, which I think now will hopefully uh, you'll see the sort of the connection between um, where we are, um, who we're representing here um, tonight and this really fine poet, um, who I knew as a baby poet, um, who has grown into such an incredible, strong voice. Um, when I read his second book, Digest, which has this incredible way of collecting um, uh, the world and translating the world, I thought of Whitman. And the reason I thought of Whitman is because, like Whitman, this is a restless poet. This is a poet who walks. Many of the poems, you will see him in action, in motion. He 
He never, he's very rarely still in a poem, like Whitman. Um, and you also notice that um, even when he's at rest, the mind is moving. Whitman would say things like, um, Whitman would, would say things like, you know, we think about the, the, the poem um, Song of Myself, which, which has micro and macro built into it. You know, um, the idea of the real Brooklyn that he inhabited, and, and yet uh, 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 ability to have the first person sort of expand f- from the... Um, from the physical to the metaphysical. This is a poet who will tell you, a text dropped in the brain pans rattles the way astrophysics say they can heal the birth of time tuning the salt rim of Saturn. And you hear that echo again. The thing that I also brought to mind when I I read Greg's book was another quote of Whitman. What is it then between us? And this is a kind of an interesting legacy that you find in this book for me. Where we are right now, what it is between us, our histories, our legacies, put through the intelligence and breath and beautiful language of this very aware and alert poet. It was a real pleasure to, to, to read this book and get this information, because for, for me, this was an announcement of where things in African-American poetry and in American poetry are going. It was a true announcement to me to see that this is, this is where we are, and this is who we are, and it is an inclusive voice. It includes all of us. It's a beautiful book, he is a beautiful writing, a human being. I've joked, I've joked to, uh, to, to, to Greg many, many times that when he won the Pulitzer, from that point on, whenever people mention the name in passing, oh, yeah, Greg Pogba, I get this. <laughs> I've been doing it for months. Greg Pogba, just automatic. I have a friend, a colleague um, and, and where I teach in, in, in Missouri who has the same reaction to the word ice cream. <laughs> ice cream. Greg Pogba. <laughs> because, because not only is, is it, is it the, the, the fact that, that he's won the Pulitzer, but the fact that the book is in the world and that it will be seen and read and shared and passed along and inspiring other poets that will now say, oh yeah, I can do that. That's where poetry can go. That's what poetry can contain. This is what a poet can actually do with language. So, Greg Pardlow. I was not in any way prepared for that. So I, I was, you know, I did have my wits about me a minute ago, but I'm, I'm kind of gathering, regathering it right now. So good evening. It's great to see so many come out to appreciate this collection. Um, 
formalities, genuine formalities. I want to thank Kavi Khanum Foundation for, good Lord, so much. Um, American Academy of American Poets, of course, for putting this together and the Swan Gallery for all for having me. Um, on, as Nigel points out, this both auspicious and somewhat solemn occasion. Because while on the one hand we know that uh, we get to experience all this beautiful art, it's also going to be disseminated uh, throughout the world. Um, yes, we are among the fortunate few able to view Dr. Maya Angelou's art collection as she would have enjoyed it. If I had unlimited resources, I would acquire the entire collection just to keep it intact. But I'm a poet. <laughs> I can dream. <laughs> but keeping it intact, would, I, I, in doing that, I would be doing it out of a sense of nostalgia, which is a, you know, a backward-looking gesture instead of a forward one. And it took, a, obviously, it took a remarkable lifetime for Dr. Angelo to, to dis assemble this collection. Each piece retains some aura, some trace, some residue of the pleasure she took in each of these items. This means that those of us who do win the privilege of adding one or more elements of this collection to their own also win the honor of carrying forth some of the spirit of Dr. Angelo's legacy. And by the way, I am committed to using the honorific doctor, as you see we all are when referring to Dr. Angelou, not only because more than 50 universities bestowed honorary degrees on her, but we also understand that the conventional routes to the highest echelons of academic life were all but closed to many women of Dr. Angelou's generation, um, and all the more forbidding to a black single mother from the rural south. And we understand that her having reached these echelons, remember she taught at Wake Forest University and held the lifetime Reynolds Professorship of American Studies. Having reached such echelons is an accomplishment that renders the honorific doctor an understatement. I find it interesting how, much, how so much of the contemporary, uh, or the commentary questioning whether the honorific was deserved came after her passing like misbehaving children talking about the matriarch only after she's well out of earshot. <laughs> Dr. Angelou, in fact, describes many incidences, incidents of being called out of her name as a child. There's one in particular, a scene in I Know Why the Cagebird Sings, in which a teenage Maya works as a maid for Mrs. Cullinan, a white woman who insists on calling her Mary. Apparently, it was common for women to rename their servants at, at their own pleasure and convenience. Mrs. Cullinan is having a dinner party, and Maya is sent to bring in the fine china for the party. But by now, she's fed up with being called first Margaret for a while and then Mary, so she's determined to get herself fired now. <laughs> and on her way into the kitchen, while carrying the stacks of chinaware, she trips, smashing all the heirloom china on the floor and sending her now former employer into a fit of rage and, and anguish. Oops. <laughs> <clears throat> of course, Dr. Maya Angelou was born Marguerite Annie Johnson. The freedom to name oneself for Dr. Angelou 
is not just a matter of claiming titles. It is a matter of self-determination. She asked the world to refer to her as doctor, and we do. And the fact that we do proves the depth of our esteem and her ability to set the terms on which the world would meet her. This comes from power as well as love. She was deeply aware of the cultural, institution, the cultural and institutional forces at work to keep her voice and voices like hers out of the marketplace of ideas. We, as well as millions of other readers of her poetry and memoirs, know that she defied those forces. And as poet Elizabeth Alexander has pointed out, she helped clear a path for the boom in black women's writing and the success of writers like Toni Morrison, Alice Walker, and Tazaki Shange. Gloria Naylor, Tony K. Bambara, among many others. She did this out of love. Her power, however, is evident in her self-portrait, which is right over there. The protector of home and family. Okay, so taking this as just one example, this painting shows Dr. Angelo as an expecting single mother standing in the doorway of her home holding a rifle. We recognize its home because of the chair set beneath a window, suggesting a domestic guard post. She is pregnant, but the striking detail for me is the fact of her finger on the trigger. And this reminds me of another incident in her second memoir, Gathered Together in My Name. Her son, Guy, is being threatened by the Savages, a street gang in Brooklyn. And Rita, as she calls herself at that, at that time, pays a visit to the gang leader's home where she threatens to kill his entire family, <laughs> including an infant. She shows the gang leader a gun in her purse to prove her ability to make good on the threat. All of this is in order to protect her son. Of course she's bluffing but her son doesn't have any problem with the gang thereafter. So at this point, I want to point out that she was, at the onset of her life, in fact, a Brooklyn poet. <laughs> All right. <laughs> her first writing workshops in a group that would later become the Harlem Writers Guild were at the Crown Heights home of John Oliver Killens. Therefore, she could not help but be as ruthless in her craft as she was in her life. So I want to share with you a poem, No Loser, No Weeper. I hate to lose something. Then she bent her head. Even a dime, I wish I was dead. I can't explain it. No more to be said except I hate to lose something. I lost a doll once and cried for a week. She could open her eyes and do all but speak. I believe she was took by some doll-snatching sneak. I tell you, I hate to lose something. A watch of mine once got up and walked away. It had 12 numbers on it, and for the time of day, I'll never forget it. And all I can say is I really hate to lose something. Now, if I felt that way about a watch and a toy, what you think I feel about my lover boy? <laughs> I ain't threatening you, madam. 
but he is my evening's joy. And I mean, I really hate to lose something. <laughs> so just fantastic. And so, <laughs> and I'm not ad-libbing any, the, 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 gram, the dialect, of course, is in there. When she shifts, so it's, it's the, subtle, the subtle things that are just so wonderful in, in her work, which obviously point out the, the, um, the almost obsessive attention to every detail in the, in the poem. Um, so after we pick our jaws up from that devastating last line off the floor, we begin to see the painstaking craft in the poem. It seems to prefigure Elizabeth Bishop's one art. Right? We can hear that. Now, what's the line? Now I'm blanking on the line again. I'm for two on the spot. <laughs> the art of losing isn't hard to master. Yes. I hate to lose something. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's, fa- it's also fascinating to put these two poems side by side, and it's certainly appropriate to reference Bishop as much of a diligent, if not obsessive, reviser as Dr. Angelou in her writing practice. Dr. Angelou defied criticism that she was a natural writer. Although many writers would love to be called natural, she understood the term was not meant entirely as a compliment. A natural writer, in this context, would be one who writes without craft, intellect, or self-awareness. It suggests a kind of naivete, a lack of sophistication. From the Paris Review interview with George Plimpton, she says, quote, I try to pull the language into such a sharpness that it jumps off the page. It must look easy, but it, ne- but it takes me forever to get it to look so easy. Of course, there are those critics, New York critics as a rule, who say, well, my Angelou has a new book out, and of course it's good, but then she's a natural writer. Those are the ones I want to grab by the throat and wrestle to the floor because it takes me forever to get it to sing. I work at the language. On an evening like this, I look out at the auditorium. If I had to write this evening from my point of view, I'd see the rust-red used worn uh, velvet seats and the lightness where people's backs have rubbed against the back of the seat so that it's a light orange, then the beautiful colors of the people's faces, the white, pink, white, beige, white, light, beige, and brown, and tan. I would have to look at all that, at all those faces and the way they sit on top of their necks. When I would end up writing after four hours or five hours in my room, it might sound like it was a rat that sat on a mat. That's that, <laughs> not a cat. But I would continue to play with it and pull at it and say, I love you. Come to me. I love you. It might take me two or three weeks just to describe what I'm seeing now. And if the language did not come already to meet her needs, she would expand it. How long, for example, did it take for her to come up with a word like phantasmatalities, (laughs) which she used to describe figures in a painting whose personalities are lost to time? But it's a word we might use today to describe victims of racial phobia. Her work and its insistence on precision and personal truth keeps opening up to successive generations of readers. Coincidentally, she says, quote, I'm using the first person singular and trying to make that the first person plural so that anybody can read the work and say, hmm, that's the truth, yes, Uh uh-huh, and live in the work. 
In this impulse towards social relevance, Dr. Angelou had a uniquely African-American problem to solve. All at once, she had to find a way to communicate the, the story of her experience, the elements of which, now brutal, now quietly searing, now glorious and phenomenal, in our culture, these are easily appropriated and sensationalized in pulpy melodramas and typecast farces. She had to communicate this material in a way that reclaimed it as human experience without neglecting her duty to literature, her duty to art, that is, without succumbing to polemics and didacticism. One of the ways she did this is, as she says, as she mentioned, uh, making the first person singular suggests the first person plural. Another characteristic of her work was her genuine fairness, it's the ethos of the work. She was honest with readers and the subjects of her poems, white liberals and bourgeois blacks alike. So I'm going to read you a couple of poems <clears throat> suggesting, well, I'll leave it to you. On working white liberals, I don't ask the Foreign Legion or anyone to win my freedom or to fight my battle better than I can. Though there's one thing that I cry for, I believe enough to die for, that is every man's responsibility to man. I'm afraid they'll have to prove first <clears throat> that they'll watch the black man move first, then follow him with faith to kingdom come. This rocky road is not paved for us, so I believe in liberals' aid for us. I will believe in liberals' aid for us when I see a white man load a black man's gun. And then there's the sepia fashion show. Their hair pomaded, faces jaded, bones protruding hip-wise. The models strutted, backed and butted, then stuck their mouths out lip-wise. They had nasty ma manners, held like banners while they looked down their nose-wise. I'd see them in hell before they'd sell me one thing they're wearing, clothes-wise. <laughs> the black bourgeois who all say yeah when yeah is what they're meaning should look around, both up and down, before they set out preening. Indeed, they swear, that's what I'll wear when I go country clubbing. I'd remind them, please, look at those knees you got at Miss Ann's scrubbing. Mm -hmm. I think it's because of her unflagging support of women and women writers that mansplaining critics at times attempted to dismiss her work as sentimental. But Dr. Angelou's work and life are far from sentimental, as we know. Uh, and I want to end with uh, one of my favorite poems of hers, Shaker, Why Don't You Sing? Shaker, Why Don't You Sing? Evicted from sleep's mute palace, I wait in silence for the bridal croon, your legs rubbing insistent rhythm against my thighs your breath moaning a canticle in my hair. But the solemn moments, unuttering, pass in unaccompanied procession. You, whose chanties hummed my life alive, have withdrawn your music and lean inaudibly 
on the quiet slope of memory. Oh, shaker, why don't you sing? In the night, noisy with street cries and the triumph of amorous insects, I focus beyond those cacophonies for the anthem of your hands and swelling chest, for the perfect harmonies which are your lips. Yet darkness brings no syncopated promise. I rest somewhere between the unsung notes of night. Shaker, why don't you sing? Thank you. Thanks for listening to Swan Sessions, a production of Swan Auction Galleries. We'd like to thank our partners, Academy of American Poets and the Kaveh Kahnem Foundation for helping us assemble this event, and the insightful Gregory Pardlow for his skillful reading and astute observations of Dr. Angelo's timeless works. We hope you'll support the work of these two great poetic organizations. For more information on SWAN, our specialists, and our auctions, check us out at swangalleries.com. Find us on Facebook and Instagram, follow us on Twitter at Swan Galleries, and be sure to check out our blog and Tumblr. Our show is engineered and edited by Kier Jordan and hosted by me, Alexandra Nelson. Stay tuned for our next episode.